Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, BJ Davison, who serves as, as Executive Vice President for Development and the Chief Development Officer at the West Virginia University Foundation. Welcome, BJ. Hey, great to be here, Brent. Thanks for asking me to hop on and chat with you a bit. Well, we have known each other for, I'm going to call it a decade, if you count a Big 10, 12 development conference uh, run in probably early on in, in my entrepreneurial journey. But I feel like our conversations have generally been very centered around the moment uh, or maybe the future. We've not uh, spent too much time talking about your past. And so I'm excited to to learn more and share with your audience and one of uh, with our audience. And one of the questions that I've enjoyed asking our guests is just to learn a little bit more about your own higher education journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who is that guy? What was he into and what led him to Frostburg State University? Oh my goodness. That's, that's a good way of putting it. So like many people in the development profession, I never intended to land here. Um, so yeah, as a high school uh, junior, senior was really an active leader, you know, in class president. And where were student. you? Where were a, you? A, a small town called Western Port, Maryland with a high school that is now closed and consolidated like many small town high schools. But Western Port is the was at one point the westernmost port on the Potomac River, how it got its name. So right across the river from West Virginia, um, grew up in a small working class town. Um, had three older sisters, uh, two considerably older who did leave town to go to college. And I have a lot of, um, I owe them a lot, frankly, because I come from a town where not many people actually went to college. Um, so anyhow, went to Frostburg State because that was about a half hour away. It was easy. It was close by, but I had a wonderful experience there, was very active in, again, kind of student government and student senate and resident assistant and all that student life stuff, which led yeah. me to Ohio State. Go ahead. Sorry. Can I just ask you a little bit more about, I feel like Western Maryland, I've traveled a lot around this country. We did this crazy RV trip during the pandemic. <laughs> I think Western Maryland is a great enigma of the United States of America. Nobody knows about Western Maryland. So tell us more about Growing sure. up in Boston, Maryland, and just that context, because it, it it's it sounds very important for the rest of the journey. Well, thank you. So, yeah, for for those of you who who look at the map and Mer Western Maryland is that skinny part of the state that kind of hangs over West Virginia to the far west. Very mountainous um, prior to some highways being constructed, I guess, in the 80s, maybe Route 68. It was very it was very kind of secluded because it wasn't easy to get you know, into Baltimore or DC from there. And actually when I went to graduate school, people said to me, oh, you're from the East Coast. I'm like, no, I'm not. Because um, <laughs> it seems so far away, but it's a beautiful area. Um, lots of uh, recreational opportunities, you know, downhill skiing, whitewater rafting. Um, but, you know, like many parts of the country, um, a place where the new economy is kind of forgotten, you know, been left behind. A lot of, you know, former industries have have left the region. So it's it's a beautiful part of the world. And and really part of the reason why I landed back at West Virginia University so late in my career, because it's not that far away. And I want everybody who's listening to just join me in Googling the shape of Maryland. And you're <laughs> all going to get an education when you start to understand that there even is a Western Maryland and exactly what it looks like. Thank you, BJ. Sure, anytime. 
And so you have a, it sounds like a really positive college experience, but that you're not uh, on campus, you know, trying to shape an advancement leadership career. What are you thinking about instead? In college, I, I thought initially that um, <clears throat> I wanted to get into banking, and I really don't know why, uh, why that, why I had that thought. But um, fortunately, because of my student life experience and getting to know a number of professionals on campus, I ended up pursuing a master's degree in higher ed administration with a concentration on student personnel at Ohio State. So my early higher education career, which really began when I graduated in 1983, was on the student life side of the shop. And um, that was at Gettysburg College. And that's where I got to meet development people. Tell me about student life. I don't know that we've had, we've had a handful of guests that started in the enrollment side. And we've talked yeah. a little bit about the similarities and differences uh, between enrollment and advancement. Just tell me about student life. What is student life? Uh, you know, how do you know if you had a good week or a bad week or a good year or a bad year when you work in student life? Good question. So, you know, student life is really, student life professionals are entrenched day to day in the lives of students. And at Gettysburg, for example, I handled Greek life and student conduct and student activities. So, oh, so you've got stories. I didn't know that that's what I was walking into. Oh, I have I have cocktail party stories that shouldn't be told this early in the morning, probably. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, really, you know, every Monday morning, I would get the call from police chief who would run down who was misbehaving off campus and that sort of thing. And, you know, had responsibilities for lining the seniors up from shortest to tallest for baccalaureate. You know, student life people, they do whatever, you know, and they handle all the messes. Right. Um, but. At, at Gettysburg, being a small institution, really in the middle of battlefields and apple orchards, the younger people that came into the college as professionals either came in through, to your point, admissions, student life, or development. And I got to know the development team because they would come to me looking for ideas that might be worthy of parents' fund participants. You know, Give me some cool concepts, BJ, cool ideas that we could take to our parents to try to raise money around. And I also noticed that the development professionals dressed better, A, and they always seem to know the bigger picture of what's going on in the institution more than I did, kind of down in the trenches with student life. And that's really where it got my first taste of fundraising. They asked me to volunteer for the faculty staff campaign. So I did. You know, I asked people for money. I thought it was kind of easy to do. Uh, and so did they rope you in or kind of what led you to then, uh, what was the next step? So the next step was a gentleman by the name of Bruce Bigelow, who's well known in our profession, um, had been the plan giving guy at Gettysburg, was leaving to go to Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, right down the road to lead their first ever comprehensive campaign. And, um, it was really through his wife over an innocent lunch discussion that I decided to go talk to Bruce about maybe doing development work because he had openings. And I really, other than that volunteering for the faculty staff campaign, I didn't really know anything about development. And I ended up, long story short, being hired to, to lead their plan giving program at Hood College in 1989. And so <laughs> you show up at work day one. Yeah. You're not getting called 
by the, the cops every Monday to basically help you craft your portfolio for the week? I mean, how do you start in a plan giving role in that context? So, and so you think about 1989, technology was really not our friend at that point in time. Um, there were a box of index cards um, and like a recipe box, which had the names of people associated with Hood College who at one point in time had said that Hood was in their will. That's what I had to work with. Um, and so, you know, we did some really simple things out the gate, like, okay, let's let's have a recognition society for those people who have put us in their will. Like, let's do some marketing around this. Let's see if we could get more people, you know, to tell us this. And again, this was all, this is the day of, we only had direct mail on telephones. We had, you know, we didn't, I remember when the Apple computer landed on my desk. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have email. So it was a lot of, but I'm, I'm grateful for the fact it was a lot of just slogging through information and calling people up and getting in the car before cell phones, you know, or ways or anything else and just going out and meeting people and telling the story. And it was, I loved it. It was great. It was Can great. I you, I've, not, I've never asked anybody in plan giving this question. Um, why do people leave Hood College and other colleges in their wills without even being asked to do so? So I think, you know, so one of my former mentors, Pete Taccone, um, who I worked with at Johns Hopkins, always said that sooner or later, people of means will confront the philanthropic question. Now, you could define means however you want to, but sooner or later, someone is Thinking about retirement, for example, maybe for the first time, sitting down with a financial advisor to see if they really can afford to do so, or they're doing their first will, or they're, you know, and all these things, I believe, cause people to reflect upon what in their lifetime has helped shape who they are and to what, to whom, to what organization can they attribute part of their success? And I I believe very strongly that's when most people think, you know, those college years or or my church or whatever has really shaped who I am. And even people who have big families, you know, um, sometimes folks are like, you know, I've I've done all I need to do for my children. I, I educated them. I helped them buy their first house. I'm helping to pay for the grandkids' education. These decisions are not mine, right? Um, and I believe it's out of that sense of gratitude that people just do this. And to your point, you're right. I think every institution, every single year gets some mistake gift from somebody they had no idea, you know? No, that, that does happen. And I think what we're what we're seeing in some of our work right now is just uncovering some of those undocumented estate gifts that are truly hidden in plain sight that historically you literally wouldn't have found out about until somebody passed away. Right. If you can find those early and it sounds like those, those three by five cards you were working with were, were those same kinds of opportunities. Um, well, a, you can meet the people and understand why they've felt compelled to support the institution but it also probably presents an opportunity, A, to sort of steward them while they're living, but but then potentially 
maybe craft a bigger gift or a more aspirational or, or maybe shaping the gift to better align with their interests that when they were kind of deciding on their own or with their financial advisor without a liaison at the institution helping guide them, they might not have realized. And so I'm just curious how often you you view that sort of estate gift or or the the uncovering that somebody intends to leave you as sort of the beginning of the conversation versus absolutely yeah no you're absolutely right I think that you know when I think back on my time at Hood for example so Hood for those of you who may not know much about Hood College was historically a women's college um, and when I was there as a professional uh, you know men could only attend classes they couldn't reside on campus so there was a history of philanthropy but but like talking about dying was considered to be in bad taste when I arrived there, right? And so plan giving is about what are you going to do when you're dead, right? You no longer need these funds. And it's really funny because when we created this recognition society and we had a really robust reunion giving program at that institution, it was just part of its culture. And we started adding into the reunion gift as a subcomponent, these plan gift commitments through what was then called our pergola society, which is long story there but anyhow it it, it, it kind of took people back when we're at this alumni luncheon on a saturday and we're talking about you know this class 50 the reunion has 10 members of our recognition society whose future commitments are approximately insert money here and and people are like ooh, you know but but you know it's like getting people comfortable and talking about the fact that you know we work really hard all of our lives to accumulate wealth and to accumulate things and sooner or later it's got to go somewhere <laughs> yeah, we we can't take it with us. So sometimes just just saying, okay, you know, telling stories, marketing. This is the person that left this bequest intention. This is the person that you know made this major, major, mega commitment. Oftentimes, there's a plan gift piece associated with that, and it sends a message to the person back home. You know, maybe I could do something like this. Maybe I can't do that much, but maybe I should do something like this too. And I think it's, I've loved those discussions. I've learned so much from people. And you're right. Sometimes it's like you, you, someone tells us that they're, we're in their will for whatever, X amount of money for a scholarship fund. Well, you get to know that person. You get to work with that person. You get to tell stories now about here's a student from your area who's receiving scholarships now. And all of a sudden the person's like, well, maybe I should do some of this during my lifetime and get this started. Right. And and then all of a sudden, like the you, you've opened the door to a whole new way of thinking. Can I ask in the plan giving context and maybe just development work more broadly? Do you ever feel like is there ever tension with this the children, for example? So uh, you meet with somebody and they'd intended to give a five hundred thousand dollar plan gift, and then you get to know them and they get excited and all of a sudden they want to give a $2 million plan gift. Are their kids upset with you? I mean, do you, does that dynamic ever emerge in, in your work? Yes, absolutely. And so I feel like this is not discussed. <laughs> it, I will say it's, it's, it's been rare, but that's always one of the questions that I think a good development officer should ask or a good plan giving officer should ask is like, who are the other people in your life who should be part of this planning process? Or even I'll ask very directly, like, do your children know what you're doing? 
with your wealth? Because I think that's really important, especially if people really have significant means, right? And I think more and more I'm finding, I'm working with a couple now, for example, who who probably are beyond the point of making their own financial decisions, but the kids are involved. And I, I, I've at least met two of the three, you know, I talked to the parents about the fact that, you know, it's really kind of a family decision now. Um, but the best planning is really done when the whole family understands what the parents are doing. And, you know, in, in most of the cases I've found that, you know, the kids are generally like, look, this is mom and dad's money. You know, they've helped me along the way. In some cases, the kids are making more money than the parents ever did. They're living in a house bigger than the parents ever had. They're driving cars nicer than the parents ever had. I'm talking about the millionaire next door people, right? And so I think there's a more of an understanding. But yeah, every once in a while you run into that. And I think it's part of our job to ask those kind of questions. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In the, uh, I don't know, traditional marketing study, right, MBA class, they would talk about the the decision-making unit. Like you may have a primary contact that is making a decision, but then who are the influencing uh, yeah you know, parties at, at that company, for example. And I feel like uh, often in development, we, we think about, you know, maybe there's a primary relationship and then oftentimes the spouse will be sort of, uh, you know, a side-by-side decision maker, but who are those other sort of members of the decision-making unit? Like, like, uh, you know, that might be influencing the, the the donor on their ultimate decision that we as development professionals might not be directly engaging. Sure. And I think there are times too where, you know, a couple may be approaching this discussion, but one of them is positioned as the lead, you know, that may be talking to the husband. And then by the time as you get through the process, you get down to making decisions, all of a sudden the other spouse is coming in with a different idea or whatever. And you just have to be, I mean, I think as development professionals, we're chameleons, right? Our job is to be completely flexible, to be whatever that person needs us to be and be able to, like one of my favorite things is, you know, how do we get to yes, right? How do we get to yes here? Um, How do we position ourselves and be creative enough and flexible enough to land the best gift for the institution, but also the best gift for this donor? I love that. And so it sounds like you then had the opportunity to join that mentor at Johns Hopkins. Yes, I did. So, uh, so I mentioned Bruce Bigelow, who was at Hood, who knew Pete Taconi very well. Pete had been at Williams for a long time. Pete went to Hopkins in the midst of a big comprehensive campaign to lead the plan giving operation. I joined him in 1997 um, and was there through 2006. And I think at Hopkins, at a big institution like at Johns Hopkins, which to some extent is a household name, I really learned a lot about taking discussions as far as we could. That's where my getting to yes was really ingrained in me institutionally. Um, you know, how how could we be responsive to this concept or this idea that happens to come with a pretty significant gift associated with it? And can we be flexible in order to get to yes and make something really great happen? And that's where I think as, as generations were shifting in, in the major gift realm, right? We were no longer with that sort of GI generation who trusted authority. Like in my hood days, 
these graduates would say to me, I know it's my reunion year. I know I have to make a big gift. I'm sure the president knows what to do with it. Well, those days are gone, right? So we get to Hopkins and I'm dealing with donors who are like, you know, they look at our any institution standard gift agreement, right? Has the escape clause in it. If at some point in the future, the trustees deem that this is no longer whatever, whatever, they can use the money, whatever, whatever. And I had people shove the gift agreement across the table at me and say, I'm not signing this. Like, this is crap, not doing this, right? So how do you, again, how do you get to yes? How do you work through those things? But yeah, Hopkins was a wonderful experience, um, you know, wonderful institution and really learned how to work with, you know, highly decentralized organization, medicine, hospital, engineering, arts program, and really, you know, just, just learned a ton there. It was a wonderful place to be. Which led to the opportunity to come full circle in Western Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. I went back to my undergraduate alma mater for a period of time. Um, my in-laws were still around. My father-in-law since passed away. I went back to where I, you know, got my start at, at Frostburg and worked for a, a regional comprehensive with relatively small campaign goals, um, a relatively immature program, and really is able to move it really kind of to the next place and leave it better than I found it, I believe. You left in 83, you returned in 07, uh, or maybe around there. How different did the place feel or did it sort of feel like coming home? It felt a lot like coming home. And I will say that part of that, interestingly, interestingly enough, was that, you know, I was on the president's cabinet at that time. And the bulk majority of those cabinet members that I found myself being a colleague with were actually at that institution working as young faculty or young administrators when I was there as a student. So I'm looking at the same faces that I saw from a student perspective. Um, and that was that was an eye opener. And then ultimately, uh, you had the opportunity to go to George Washington. I know you worked with uh, Ann Dean there, who has been a, a prior <laughs> guest, uh, of Evertrues as well. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, so Ann Dean is a rock star, by the way, for those of you that don't know her. Um, long story there, which won't have time for. But anyhow, um, you know, in our profession, we tend to travel in little herds, right? We all know people from previous institutions. There are a number of folks who had been at Johns Hopkins, who were now at George Washington, including Mike Morrisberger, who was the vice, vice president, John Cuddles, who had led um, the principal gift program, whom I was basically replacing, and um, had the chance to really focus exclusively on principal gifts, which for GW, like many institutions, was a million dollars plus um, in a metropolitan setting, which was different for me. Again, a boy from the mountains to live in DC was fun. Uh, had a great experience, wonderful team at GW. We were in a comprehensive campaign again and um, had the pleasure there of being part of a team that worked on a really transformational gift uh, for the School of Public Health, which came from the Milken organization. Mike Milken and Sumner Redstone was an $80 million commitment uh, to name the building, name the deanship, name the school. Um, learned a lot through that experience. What is it like walking into a principal gift portfolio at an institution you don't know in a city 
you don't know that well. Uh, I mean, I guess you had some time in the in the general area, but what what is day one like? What is onboarding like? What should it be like? I'm I'm curious. Sure, and I'll say that it was a great experience for me at GW in that onboarding process because John Cutlass, who was leaving the role, we actually overlapped for a period of time, a couple months, and that was incredibly helpful. Um, John, as an individual, kept meticulous, brief, meaningful files, hard files, again, paper. Um, and, you know, we had a team of people around us who, you know, could really pull information from the system. But part of what happened there was that I would just sit down with John for, you know, a couple hours at a time and we'd run through names and he would pull out those files and he, and he had you know, here are the next action steps that need to happen somewhere in the course of these, you know, next several months. And, you know, here's where the president's going to play a role. And we met weekly or every other week, I guess, with the president and his team. And it was really all about how, as a group, we kind of kept things moving. You know, I was introduced in kind of slowly, um, but very thoughtfully. And, um, you know, you just kind of go back to asking yourself what is good basic development work and it's about you know getting in there and trying to develop some sort of relationship that's yours um and keep the ball moving and knowing knowing when maybe it's you're not the right mix you're not going to jive with this person the way john did or you know and really not having an ego about that and just going man we're not connecting i shouldn't be the lead person here um i could be behind the scenes i could help keep the trains running, but I'm not going to be driving the train. And in doing that work, I would imagine you're almost never going to be encountering sort of cold leads or brand new prospects, or am, am I off sometimes that might emerge? No, you're, you're pretty accurate there. I mean, normally at that level, you're dealing with people that have had some sort of relationship with the institution. Every once in a while, there's the rarity, right? Where someone kind of shoots out of the, out of the dark because the institution has done something that really captures their imagination. But usually at a principal gift level, you're dealing with known entities for sure. And then uh, following that, you've had the opportunity to, uh, I think really, work through and help lead a, a pretty transformational period for West Virginia University. Yep, came here in 2015. And um, I'll tell you, for those of you that are in, that have been in job searches, we've all been in those searches where we have the God awful search committee of, you know, 20 some people, um, most of whom really don't know that much about fundraising. Um, many of whom want to hear a certain answer coming from the candidate because it, it advances their you know, kind of their concepts. But um, I was very impressed when I interviewed here because, and people might find this hard to believe, I really only met with three people. I met with Cindy Roth, the CEO, Michael Augustine, our chief financial officer on the first visit. And then I came back and I had lunch with the then provost, Joyce McConnell, in a building right across from this office. I didn't meet, I did not meet anybody on my team. Um, and I had a conference call with four board members. And what I liked about that was because I am a I'm a J on the Myers-Briggs. I make decisions quickly. It was made clear to me that 
the decision about who would get this job rests solely with the CEO, Cindy Roth. And I'm like, okay, that's a good sign for me. That's not, again, some search committee of 20 people having to achieve consensus and kumbaya about whether or not I was the right person. Um, came on board at a time where the campaign called the State of Minds um, had already achieved its first goal of $750 million. The board had en enhanced the goal to a billion, extended the time frame. And it was clear to me as I looked at the information that was made available to me that there are a lot of things that were being done right here at WVU. Um, and probably it's just a matter of taking the development operation to the next level you know, where do we pay the most attention? And having come out of a principal gifts background, I'm like, okay, that's where we need to be. And we really did my first couple of years in particular, kind of reshape, redefine the program. Um, WVU had clearly received gifts at the million dollar plus level in its past, but there was not what I would call a concerted effort and a laser-like focus on growing that part of the pyramid. And that was really one of the first things that I did with a couple key staff here. Like, okay, if we're going to be successful in this campaign, then the campaign that will undoubtedly follow, that's the first place we have to focus. And so when you walk into a context like that, you've got uh, uh, some sort of framework, you're coming in, you're like, I'm going to audit the status quo in doing that quick audit, <clears throat> maybe data, maybe anecdotes. It's clear there's a missed opportunity here. I'm going to make sure everybody else understands that that's clear. And then we're going to come up with a game plan to go and fix it. Just tell me more about those initial observations, either data or anecdotes that just made it very clear for you that the principal gift opportunity was untapped and then kind of how you went about building that program. Sure. And I think, you know, for me, again, coming out of a principal, principal gift background, you know, we knew every day, like how many principal gifts we closed that fiscal year and, and who was on next up. And so um, I was, when I come here, I get the benefit of the fact that there were a number of my senior development professionals who had been here 20 plus years. And, you know, one could look at that, go, oh, that's a warning sign. But it was really a positive thing in that there was a true sense of history. And there was a true understanding of the culture of the place. But my first kind of signal about the missed opportunity was I asked some key leaders on my team how many principal gifts were in the campaign in the campaign already. And nobody could readily tell me that. Like no one had the answer. Um, and I'm like, okay, that they're there. Let this this reaffirms my decision that we need to start here. And when I started asking for, you know, give me some data on this, what I would find depending upon who I asked was, you know, if a couple, let's say, had given a million dollar gift and they split it a half million to cancer and a half million to the School of Arts and Sciences, it wasn't coming on the report as a million dollar contribution, right? It's coming as two separate. I'm like, no, let's, let's really define a principal gift as someone or some entity gave a million dollars in some, some way, shape or form between July 1 and June 30 that's a million dollar commitment. I don't care if it came in four payments, three separate gifts, that's a million dollars. So let's, let's define that and let's work from that standpoint. And the other thing that we needed to do from a central operation is for us as leaders to not be hoarding those prospects, right? If we want everybody to buy into this, we need to trust that that development officer 
if the school of engineering is capable of managing that relationship and securing that gift. And if they aren't, we need to behave in such a way as coaches to help them understand that our job is to help them be successful. We're not saying you're not any good. We're not saying you can't handle this. We're not saying we're going to tightly control the folks at the top of the pyramid. We're saying we're all in this together. All right. And we're all working on this together. So, so part of the culture shift, I just want to mention too, um, at the end of my first fiscal year, and we hit our goal. And one of the development officers out in the schools and units called me to congratulate me on having met my goal. I'm like, no, this, this was our goal. Like we own this together. And that sense of ownership has been one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of my time here. Because again, yes, we're central, the leadership team is central, but together we're making these things happen. Tell me more about culture and the leadership team, because we have seen countless research studies that talk about lack of tenure in difficulty of retaining talent in the advancement sector, et cetera, et cetera. Cindy has been leading the organization now, who was a guest on our podcast as well, for almost 10 years. You're rounding the corner on eight years at WVU Foundation. Chuck Kurzak coming in at about 25 years, if my math serves me. And that is almost unheard of uh, in this sector. So is that just sort of three fluke data points or do you see something (laughs) around retention that is is different there than maybe what you've observed or learned from your peers? Um, Well, a couple of things. I I mean, we do work really hard on culture here and we are constantly doing, not constantly, but continuing doing like little poly surveys or annual surveys where we're asking people, you know, do they understand, do they feel aligned with the mission of the institution? Basically, are you proud of the job that you're doing? Do you feel like I make a difference every day? Um, are your ideas being heard? And we, you know, we take those answers very seriously. You know, we do have a fair number of long tenured people on the staff here, which is rare you know, in our profession, it truly is. Um, I think part of it has to do with with this institution, with WVU being so important in the state of West Virginia. We are the land-grant institution. You know, the state has a lot of challenges that it faces, and really the university, in most cases, holds most of the answers to addressing those challenges. People feel, I believe, a deep commitment to this institution. Um, and, and we do try, to, I, I always try as a leader, I always try to ask the people that report to me, are you getting what you need from me? Are you getting stuff from me you don't need or want? You know, be honest, you know, create that sort of open, we have a, have a sign outside my door that says clear as kind, um, you know, trying to be clear with folks. Um, and, you know, despite our best efforts, like everybody else, you know, we we hired people during COVID that we've since lost already, you know, who just... I think it was really hard to bring people into a culture when they're getting their laptop and their cell phone at the, in the parking lot of a convenience store. Um, you know, so, you know, we're trying to balance those things, but I, I do think paying attention to people's personal lives without being intrusive, um, you know, asking people how they're doing, how's the family doing, and really, you know, being flexible, you know, we're still talking about 
you know, we're, we're not all in the office all the time. Uh, we talk about being location agnostic. Your office is where your laptop and your phone is. Um, you know, work when you can, like get your work done, work when you can. I know in some cases we got folks and I'm talking to people, I'm sure on this podcast who have, you know, school age kids and two jobs and, you know, getting onto your computer at 830 in the morning may be really difficult. So, you know, we got a whole second shift of people that work late at night who just, I know that's one that works for them. And as leaders, we have to be trusting that people are doing their work and give them the space to do it. And honestly, the people who maybe weren't all that productive when we were in the office all the time are the same people that aren't all that productive when we're not. And, and so vice versa. are a believer in remote work, it sounds like. Oh, I think, yeah, we, I think we just have to be. I don't, we think about fundraisers in particular. I don't really want fundraisers working in the office anyhow. I want them out there. And so I don't care. We've, we've hired more people embedded in regions of late, for example, um, I just want people to work. And if, you know, if they can be close to an airport or we've got, we're looking at where our, our people really are to say, we really should just put somebody here. We need to hire somebody to work here, you know? And it also helps for us, like many large complex institutions, to be able to say to our development colleagues in our School of Creative Arts, you've got those two prospects in wherever, um, upstate New York, you're, you'll probably never get there on a regular basis. Let our central people, you know, develop that relationship, build the groundwork, secure the first gift, you know, bring people in. I just think we have to just think very differently about the world of work. I don't think being in the office all the time is ever really going to come back. I love that. And uh, I do feel like it's <laughs> quite progressive in the sector from what we're seeing and hearing uh, from our from our audience, unfortunately, and, you know, looking at and maybe some of it is just, uh, you know, in circumstances like West Virginia is where you, you've obviously got a concentration of people sort of let's call it in the backyard. Um, but it's also highly distributed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just looking at, a, at a quick cut, you've got over 6000 alumni in Florida, you've got 5000 in New York, you've got over 4000 in California, 4000 in Texas. Yeah. And we now have the opportunity to be, you know, far more efficient, finding people in local markets who already know the lay of the land, know how to get around the city, you don't have to be traveling. I mean, I don't know what your flight options are for Morgantown, but it has to be tricky sometimes to get to places in an yeah. efficient way. So it seems so obvious to consider regional embedding at a minimum, uh, yet yeah. it still feels like it's very much the exception, not the rule, even after COVID. Well, and we have other people on the team who aren't in development, like IT and researchers who, you know, if a, if a spouse or significant other has an opportunity for a fabulous job, I don't care, Chicago, right? And your choice is either to lose that really good candidate, that worker who's in your IT department or your research department, your communications department, and try to go out and find somebody or to let them live in Chicago with their spouse. I mean, th that's why would you not? say, sure. You know, why would you not? And I just think that, you know, I mean, like, yes, you've got a lot of peers that are, that are saying no to that. Does this come up? I mean, are you debating this with others or <laughs> just staying focused? No, I, I you know, I, it does come up every once in a while. Certainly, you know, peers call and say, what are you doing? And, 
or I'm, you know, meeting folks at a conference. I'm saying, you know, we're still on a hybrid work mode here. We're not back in. We've actually reduced our footprint in office space recently um, and let some space go. And um, I just I think it's very short sighted to just call people back in the office and assume that it's going to work. I just, you know, and if you got somebody who's not productive outside the office, then you got to deal with that issue. But if for most of your people being flexible or being remote or being hybrid is working, you know, we 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 had our best fundraising year ever in the height of COVID and we weren't here. We had our second best year in year two of COVID. And there are a few people here, but most of us weren't. So I think most organizations probably prove that it can be done without having people coming in all the time. Well, reflecting on that experience and on your 30 plus years of experience in the sector, what is required to succeed if it is not cubicles or a physical office footprint? Like, which by the way, as a donor, I don't really care where the development professional that I'm working with happens to be sitting on a given day. I truly could care less, yeah. but yeah. there has been, you know, change is hard. So if it's not about needing the physical proximity, what is it about? I think it's about a certain skill set and a certain attitude from a development fundraiser standpoint, for example. Um, it's somebody who, and when I interview people, I ask this question, like, where do you get your energy? Like what motivates you to get out of bed every day? And what gives you energy during the course of the day? And for, I think for most frontline development officers, it's about being around people. It's about having relationships, right? And then, you know, having the fire in the belly, like every day to get up and say, what of all the stuff on my list in the bazillion emails, like I spend my entire day handling email traffic, what are the three or four things I simply must do to get us closer to securing a gift from that person? And if that becomes your mini post-it note to-do list, or if that becomes the thing on your computer, or by God, I'm not walking away from this computer or the, my phone until that's done, then that's what you got to do. And the, so the funny thing is I will share with you, now that there are more of us back in the office on a regular basis, it's a lot of the development people who do get their energy from other people. <laughs> You know, and they're not here all the time, but it's like if I went around here today, I would tell you it's it's my leadership team, it's probably the plan giving group, it's the corporate foundation relations people. They're the ones who are here on a more regular basis. And I think there are a lot of folks who get into development, not a lot. There are a few people get into development thinking it's a certain way, and you know, have a lot of quiet time, and they'll just plan these trips and they'll go to really nice places. Well, yeah, you do get to do some of that. You also go to some pretty not so nice places and you you work really hard to get in the door and make those appointments. And it's not all glamour. And, you know, and you have to have, I once had a donor tell me very directly, BJ, you're in a lifestyle job. You've chosen a lifestyle profession because yes, you're at every home football game on a Saturday and yes, you're at every banquet on a Friday night. And yes, you know, and no, you're not, going in later in the day the next day because you worked late the night before because you have so much work to do. It's like you are making a lifestyle decision. And if being around people 24-7 is not what you want to do, do not go into a fundraising job. DJ, what is the least glamorous development experience or trip that you've ever had? 
Oh goodness. Um there's so many actually. Staying in a really It'd be a awful... whole new podcast, by the way. Uh, yes, I mean, yes. The worst trip ever, the development officers podcast. People would call people would call in. Um in upstate New York years ago, um, with the with the two at two visits, traveling with a colleague, staying at a really bad hotel. And I ended up, I don't know why I did this, but I I closed the, the bathroom door when I was in the bathroom and the bathroom door stuck and it wouldn't open. And um, thank God I was traveling with somebody because eventually they were out in the car and I was in the bathroom was on the back of this strip hotel. So nobody was back there. I'm shaking the door and I'm yelling. Long story short, the hotel staff comes in with a butter knife. And they get the bathroom door unjammed and they said, as they got me out of there, this happens all the time in this room. Um, you didn't see that on the uh, Google reviews before you booked no, it? Uh, no. This, I'm going to now ask that question to every single guest because that is poignant. Uh, and I'm yeah. glad to have a butter knife on hand. Yeah, actually at a staff meeting about two weeks afterwards, um, one of the staff person came in. They said, I opened this Federal Express package erroneously, BJ. I'm sorry. And I opened it and my colleagues had done had made the letterhead for this hotel and they had wrapped in wrapping paper a butter knife for me. And I really kind of almost went to the roof. They totally caught me off guard. I, I thought it was legit that the hotel had sent me a butter knife as an apology for this situation. So anyhow, the butter knife. Yeah, that that's it, probably. <laughs> That is instant classic uh, raised podcast material. Thank you for sharing the butter. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, let's shift to maybe a more meaningful story and then we'll wrap up. Tell me about uh, Harriet and Milton, maybe more on the more fulfilling side of the. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. So this is a great couple that I had an opportunity to work with at Johns Hopkins. And um, this is really kind of the Mooner next door story, which I hope I know there are a lot of young people, younger people than me. In development that may not even know about the book the millionaire next door but it's all about you know the hidden wealth in this country so um harriet and milton um had been married a really long time very much in love with each other never had children and um they were very enamored with the children's hospital at johns hopkins and wanted to do something to support children and i think one is i loved them very much and they felt like family to me um, my wife had made the comment once that, I'm sorry. It's okay. Anyhow, I won't tell that part of the story. It's too emotional, but anyhow, so they, um, really just started making these charitable gift annuities. They were just, they started to fund one and then two, and they loved how it worked. And, um, they ended up just really having achieving a certain gift level before they die as being like a really primary goal for them. And um, long story short, over a period of years, Milton passed away first. Um, we stayed, I stayed in touch with them after I left the institution actually. And they, uh, Harry ended up naming a garden at the Duke Children's Hospital in, in, in honor of Milton, her husband. But they're just really cool people. And um Harriet well into her 90s you know I'm a I'm a project person in my personal life I know many people you know just constantly have projects she's calling me she's like 94 
And um, she's like, I, I'm thinking about replacing all the windows in the house, BJ. What do you think? So I really kind of became like this sounding board for her, kind of like kind of like a son. And it was my wife, like the emotional part. She said, you know, you're, my mother would, will always be around as long as Harriet was around because she really became my kind of a mother figure after my, after my mom had passed away. But they were just the sort of people that were so unassuming that could have easily gotten lost in the shuffle and the noise of a large institution in a massive campaign who just had hearts of gold. And all they wanted to do was make the world better for somebody else. BJ, how often, it's a beautiful story and appreciate the emotion and uh, shouldn't shy away from that's sort of what makes this sector amazing. Um, but how often do you feel like those those kinds of relationships do fall through the cracks. And honestly, I feel like, you know, as part of our work and, and others in the, in the field, that's, you know, that's what I feel like our charter has to be, which is how do we make it almost impossible for yeah. relations like that to relationships like that to fall through the cracks because the opportunity cost uh, is, is literally, you, you know, not, not being able to change the world in, in as holistic of a way. And, and so um, it's such a powerful anecdote that I'm sure you've shared uh, with others and, and hopefully you can yeah. this as being just an example of what we're, why we're doing what we're doing. But also if we had just done things a little bit different, they could have completely fallen through the cracks. It would have changed yeah. their life, you know, their lives, their ability to achieve what they wanted to achieve. It would have limited what the institutional impact and investment could be. Um, and so how do you kind of reconcile that? Yeah, I think it's, that's, I think it's something we really need to pay attention to. And there are things that we do sometimes institutionally from a data, from a data standpoint, that as, as transitions happen, bad things can happen if someone's not around to think about it, for example. And I've run into this previously where you have a, you have a couple, right? So regardless, husband, wife, uh, you know, situation where <clears throat> the giving gets associated with a primary record with, let's say, the husband. So the giving is there. She only has like maybe recognition data or maybe no, maybe it's all on his record. He passes away. A development officer changes. All of a sudden, she's not getting invited to this thing that you always do because we're pulling the data from a, cer a certain way that we've always pulled it that way. And you know, it's like we have to be super careful in how we manage our data so that that sort of stuff doesn't happen to be thoughtful about, you know, is every part of this relationship, this couple, whatever it is, is, is the money following on both their records? Can we make certain that someone won't get dropped when someone passes away? Um, you know, and how, especially in our profession where probably the average development officer is on the job 18 months to maybe two years. You know, I, I've certainly been, and I've moved around myself, but I've been in places long enough to be the person who's seeing this donor who says, you're the fourth development professional I've seen, you know, in a 12 year period, like, should I, should I bother investing in you? Like, are you going to stay? Um, 
and, and try to remember that the relationship is always, of course, with the institution, but we as development officers have got to be really thoughtful. Like I said, with my John Cutlass example at GW, you know, he sat down with me and said, these are the people, you know, we can't drop the ball on this group of people, right? And, you know, I think with all of our new technologies and, and everything, I think sometimes we can over rely on the IT side of the operation to guide us when at fundamentally, we just need to remember there are people behind these relationships. And if, you know, someone leaves your team and you're not reassigning in a thoughtful manner, all the folks they were working with, you know, we're just, we're losing out there. Yeah. That's where I feel like there is an element of you know, mystery shopping through the lens of the donor, right? We do all of these things. We'll talk about a gift processing rule, or we'll talk about a CRM conversion and all of, all of this stuff happens. Uh And then at some point, somebody has got to come back and say, okay, what about Harriet? What about Milton? Let's just look at what their experience has been for the last 12 months. Right. All of this investment and all of these rules and all of these smart automation things, but Harriet and Milton just went a year without hearing, or Milton got a bunch of contact and we basically created a new rule that meant Harriet got ignored. That's not right. okay. And I think no. that's where we've just got to constantly reframe this through the donor experience, through Harriet, through Milton. And fortunately, we do have enough data at our disposal that we can we can do retroactives and we can just look and say, what has the actual touch point and 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 experience been I, this morning. I did, had a call with one of your peers that uh, is in is in Florida today. He said that you know he's just taken over leadership of a new organization. First thing he does is right, give me a list of the biggest lifetime donors and starts going through one by one, trying to deconstruct the the history. And and he and he says you know it jumps out at him that somebody had given one point five million dollars in twenty fifteen, had actually hosted a great event for the university since that time. And has not had a single visit. Yeah, not had a conversation, and it's just how do we again make that sort of thing almost impossible? Uh, got a long way to go. We, I think we do, and we have to recognize that we are all functioning in a highly competitive philanthropic market, and you know, you're all people don't need to give their money to us, whoever whoever the us is, be it your alma mater, your church, or your charity down the street. They're, they're under no obligation to do this. And, you know, I think sometimes we just get a little, we start making assumptions that some, so-and-so is always with us, you know, they'll be with us all the time. And, you know, if we're not there, if they don't perceive us as being there at those critical life moments where they're making big decisions because they have to, then, you know, shame on us. Well said, good concluding thoughts, PJ. Thank you so much for sharing Uh, Tell me about uh, the latest at the foundation. Are you hiring? If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? We do have positions open and um, our website, wvuf.org. You'll you'll see some things there. Uh, I'm also happy to hear from people directly. I'm sure my contact information is in there. Um, We are, like many institutions, in the quiet phase of a comprehensive campaign, um, which we'll be launching here at some point. haven't quite decided when. Um, but we have, uh, you know, just a lot of great things happening at this institution again for, you know, I, I've always been mostly in higher education. Um, 
And I think that land grant institutions in particular, who really have at their core mission service of the, for the people of their state, it's a really motivating thing to do. We have a great, great culture here. Um, so I just hope everybody, I hope everybody who's maybe participating, you know, that they're all in a place that makes them happy every day to get up and go go to work. Um, whether you're going to your computer and your study or to the office, I think it's really important that we find a lot of gratification in how we spend most of our time. And if and if you're not doing that, you need to look at why that is and change that situation for yourself. Well said, BJ. And I'm hopeful that our paths will cross maybe at the Big 12 Development Conference or the Case Summit or sometime here in the next few months. Um, sure. Today, I sincerely appreciate your uh, willingness to to kind of share your story and and share your history. And so with that, I'm going to close today's episode and encourage you to reach out to BJ on LinkedIn or be in touch. Uh, with that, Brent signing off with today's guest, BJ Davison from the West Virginia University Foundation. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Take care.